He is committed to Biker Grove, even though it must be 22, 23 years ago. Hello, movie fans, and welcome to the Popcorn Social, our monthly look at all screens, big and small, over at linktothecast.eu. So come grab your oversized drink and settle in for your featured performance. Welcome back to the third installment of the Popcorn Social from your friends here at Link to the Cast. I'm your host, Dave Ryan, and I'm joined on the line by my partner in all things movies. It's Jack Lazell. Jack, how are you, my friend? I'm very well, thanks, Dave. I really enjoy this podcast and I'm happy to be back. Yeah, indeed. It's like we we tend to spend a lot of our, our lives, you know, uh, talking bullshit over text and we frequently do talk about the movies in between chats about football and any other number of things but it's a, it's been a fun outlet so far and I like kind of having some deep dives on uh, another subject I'm passionate about yeah. uh, rather than trying to find room in our flagship podcast link to the cast to talk about movies every week I genuinely thought you were going to go with we tend to spend lots of time in the dark staring at screens while passively shoveling things into our mouths <laughs> <laughs> but enough about my late night job exactly uh, hey. uh, yeah so how have you been friend I've been pretty well, thanks, Dave. Yeah, uh, you know, already given up an evening to, to chat to you this week. So this is uh, another a double delight this week. Yeah, it's a, it's a big week talking about uh, talking about anything but video games on Link to the Cast to Daddy You this week. Do you know what? It's funny you should say that because all I want to talk about is Far Cry Five. <laughs> I know I'm chomping at the bit to talk about it, but they're going to have to tune in next week. I've also been preparing for now, I think, nearly three weeks to talk about Grim Fandango, so it's going to be a belter of a show when yeah. I finally get to talk about also, it. Also, a video game that um, sounds most like a Marty yeah, you- Bush character is Grim Fandango. <laughs> oh, Grim Fandango! MB, I love Marty Bush, so that comes Our- from a place of love. <laughs> Our improv podcast will be dropping later this month. Um, anyway, you've you you've seen a lot of movies this month. I've seen a few movies this month. I, I've kind of been busy, so I haven't uh, seen as many as you. But I think we've still got plenty to talk yeah, about in this show. Shall it. we get into it, buddy? Let's go with now showing. Hey, you! Don't watch that. Watch this. Right, a few interesting selections in now showing this month, uh, Jack. And I'm going to kick things off here by talking about a movie that I was kind of the low man on here last month uh, when we were doing our predictions. Uh, I want to talk about Pacific Rim Uprising for a second, if I might. Go ahead, sir. Um, So you've seen this movie as well, unless I'm very much mistaken. I did indeed. Um, And like I said, we talked about it last month and I was very much kind of... I think I, I my kind of setting expectations low, I, I wasn't the only person doing that because the lack of Guillermo del Toro on this project is enough of a, uh, a warning sign. Um, but on top of that, I think 
most, if not all, of the promotional material and the trailers really didn't do a lot for me. W- would you be the same on that? I'm not necessarily sure because I, I kind of watched them and I didn't think it looked like a huge departure from what the first one was. So I was just like, I'm, I'm on board. I like the first one. I wasn't particularly fussed. I don't necessarily read too much into trailers. They tend to excite me rather than sort of like deflate me. There's there's very rare that I'll watch a trailer for a movie, Dave, where I'll just think, oh, actually, no. If, if it was something that I was already interested in seeing, like there's plenty of trailers I see for the first time where I'm like, eh, yeah, no way, I'm not watching that. That looks horrible. Mm-hmm. But I, I don't know if there's a good example of something in the recent past that you've watched a trailer for and gone, mm not feeling it would pacific rim uprising be that example yeah i have also had recently and hopefully it's one we'll be talking about next month because i'm dying to go see it i've also had the opposite happen where i've had a trailer where a movie that was not on my radar was immediately put on my radar uh, and that was thoroughbreds Uh, i only saw a trailer for that for the first time during the week um, and it was immense. Uh, it very much, we talked about it, has that kind of vibe of Heathers about it, and I love me some Heathers, sir. Uh, so I, I'm very much circling that now, even though it wasn't on my radar anymore. But back to Pacific Rim Uprising. Um, this movie is coming from director Stephen S. Knight, who I think would be better known for he... As a direct, he's directed a few episodes of like um, Daredevil, Smallville, Angel. So he's been around for a while, um, but he took on this the unenviable task of filling Guillermo del Toro's shoes uh, on this project. And I, I got to put my cards on the table here, Jack. It is more fun than I was ever expecting it to be. Uh, in a certain, like, I think my exact description to you was, it had no right to be as entertaining as it was. Yeah, I don't necessarily know if, if that's the terminology I would use, but I, I did have a lot of fun with it. This is the sort of quintessential big, dumb popcorn movie. I think Guillermo del Toro brought, like, a an artistic flair to the first one that you might not necessarily see kind of see like ahead of time going into it knowing what it was about big robots battle big monsters that there was going to be that but this is kind of when i saw the trailer for the first pacific rim i was expecting it to be a movie just like the one (laughs) that pacific rim uprising was so yeah i i liked it a lot man i i didn't it's not going to change the world or rewrite action movies or or do anything that's going to ever kind of stick, I think in my conscience for a long, long time. But basically to jump straight into it, Dave, this film was carried like under the weight of an extremely charismatic performance from John Boyega, my boy. Yeah. Uh, the London resident. Yes, my boy Eager. Uh, he just, he was so great in this, don't you think? Yeah, I really do. There was a couple of shaky seconds at the start. So there's kind of like a, a, a montage at the start that introduces you to John Boyega's character, which is Jake Pentecost, son of Idris Elba, Stacker Pentecost from the first movie. And it's this kind of like real uh, flashy montage of, you know, what his life's like and what's happened since the first movie, which I think it's clever to not spend too much time dwelling on all that stuff because we don't need an origin story at the start of a second movie uh, for somebody. So it was good that they did it in that way. But I don't know about you, 
<laughs> I, I was a little bit concerned for the first maybe 30 or 45 seconds of this because to me, I was just kind of looking around going, did Guy Ritchie direct this movie? Did you get a very Guy Ritchie vibe off that, like, just whatever way that the edits were going during this kind of introduction to Jake Pentecost and this kind of vibe that this ain't your daddy's Pacific Rim? (laughs) I kind of know what you mean. And that sort of, uh, maybe it's the accent, Dave. Maybe it's just the, like, sort of strong Cockney accent and the, like, fast living. It it has a bit of the feel of, um, have you ever seen the film Rock and Roller? Yes, I have. It did have a bit of that feel where it's like charismatic, flighty character that, that John Boyega is portraying is a bit like the the rock and roller in, in that film. Mm. Uh, so maybe I can I kind of see yeah. where you're coming from on that one. Uh, I think it's closer it to settled. Matthew Vaughan, though, than Guy Ritchie, if I had to put someone on. I could give you, yeah, uh, yeah, like first First Kingsman, maybe. I could see it in there. Yeah, definitely. That kind of like... Yeah, but uh, that's that style of like quick edits and yeah, the the, the Cockney narration really definitely makes me kind of uh, think that way as well towards the Guy Ritchie of it all. But it settles in very quickly after that uh, into the world and into its kind of new pair of shoes per se. Uh, and from there just becomes a very fun movie. Uh, as you say, I think the movie would suffer greatly without John Boyega again. I think it would be kind of kind of somewhere on like the fair to middling rather than very enjoyable without him in it because kind of every moment where there's a lull or every moment where you think oh it's 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 starting to just kind of be just a standard tropey action movie uh john boyega just pops in almost like an audience cipher to take the piss out of things that's go that are that are going on around him um but he's not the only one who I was impressed by in this film. I think there was, uh, I don't know if you, how, how you feel about it, but I think there was uh, an interesting part of this movie, and I don't want to spoil it, where Charlie Day, who's a guy who is still obviously best known for It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, and, and basically mainly known for playing variations of that character uh, from It's Always Sunny, showed a little something different in this showed that he has uh chops and a range that i hadn't expected to see from him yeah definitely i mean would it be too much of a spoiler to say that it was a little bit of a a sort of turn for the worse yeah let, let, let's let's leave it at he's dealing with some stuff <laughs> some some stuff has happened to him yeah it's kind of twilight zoney what happens to him don't you think yeah, it's a little bit on the... That, it's one of the, the weird through lines that I could definitely see being on uh, Guillermo's list of ideas he had for the sequel. Because, like, it's a suitably weird idea that someone like him would come up with. Yeah. My favourite moment is, without giving too much away, obviously it's Pacific Rim, so giant robots fight giant monsters hate to give it up there folks but we pretty much knew that was part of it uh and one of my favorite parts is while that's happening charlie day is pretty much just chilling on a rooftop watching the whole deal unfold yeah (laughs) and it keep cutting to him for his reactions so they're like cutting to all the serious face people in like oh you know are you gonna do it are you gonna stop this giant monster then they're cutting like inside the robots and stuff 
And and then it just cuts to like Charlie Day on a rooftop, <laughs> and he's like overseeing the whole thing, and he's he's rooting for his side to win. Uh, I I would also say uh, in this, I really enjoyed the return of Bern Gorman as Herman Gottlieb. Uh, I I very much enjoyed him and Charlie Day's back and forth in the first film. So we got a little bit of this here before Charlie Day goes on his own arc in the film. So that was a great callback. Um, one of the things I enjoyed speaking of callbacks to the first film, uh, very much enjoyed the ways in which this sequel subverts the things you would expect from a Pacific Rim sequel. Do you know the kinds of things I'm referring to in here? Like there are moments in Pacific Rim Uprising where you think they're going to echo what happened in the first film. And usually what happens at those moments is that John Boyega will come in and make a comment about how we're not doing that. Yeah, John Boyega is not only a charismatic lead he also plays the part of the audience in this film yeah like it's not fourth wall breaking but it's kind of that that line of like self-awareness this is a very self-aware movie and i think that's what Mm. tips it over from being just okay to good like if if you were going to give it like an out of 10 it'd be like six and a half kind of score uh and and that is mainly i think just the the self-awareness factor that that is woven into this ridiculous movie i also really appreciate what they did with the like my assumption i went into this i had seen the first trailer the teaser should i say and saw no more of it because i was completely disinterested i've only gone back now in hindsight to look at the other trailers but um i was very interested to see where they went with the plot because i thought the obvious thing they were going to do in the sequel was just oh the rift opens again and the way the first one seemed to be setting up was like oh there's going to be like category six or category seven kaiju coming through bigger tougher kaiju because that's usually the action movie sequel is like it's like the first one but bigger and more uh but that's not what they did here they came up with a really cool idea and without spoiling it i think some of the the designs they had for the the antagonists in this movie were really cool definitely yeah the 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 giant monsters and the way that it's it's difficult without uh spoiling it to say too much more but they 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 did look awesome and you know what i appreciated about this one dave was the climactic final um showdown in in the first film was at night uh which is obviously Mm -hmm. a very guillermo del toro kind of artistic license to have something happening as as, in as dramatic and cinematic sort of conditions as he could find whereas this was the middle of the day which i think is a really interesting choice like how often do you see like big disaster movie kind of centerpiece that happens in the middle of the day in bright sunshine like it really puts it on the uh like graphics and art design departments because there are things that you can probably bury in the dark that you can't bury in the light i remember Mm -hmm. listening to john boyega before the film come out on uh on i was gonna say the nerdist i think it's id10t now and he was just like yeah like they had to watch way 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 more intently than you would ever do and i just think that that's kind of a unique spin on the uh the the epic disaster set piece in a movie is to have it happen in like the bright of day so you can see everything in in full clear thing and the cinematography of that scene in particular uh and the way that they ha- present the kaiju i just think it's it's, it's really cool like it's, a, it's an achievement i think um like from a cinematic perspective yeah 
Absolutely. And before we move on here, one more thing. Spare a thought for Charlie Hunnam. (laughs) 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 Who is just like, just completely shunted out of existence in this. I think there's there's a line of dialogue that kind of references him and what he did in the first movie. But unlike several characters from the first movie who return, he does not. It's almost like he would have been treated with more reverence had he, like, dramatically perished in the first movie. (laughs) Yeah, if only. Uh, I I think it's... uh, He has not had a great time of it trying to break through as as a leading man. Um, I I didn't... He was the thing I liked the very least about the first Pacific Rim movie. I, I like that movie a lot. Yes, Dave. To quote Shania Twain, he's got the looks, but he hasn't got the touch. Yeah, uh, I think Mark Kermode uh, described him as just being a quintessential television actor. Like, he just... There's something, like, even though we're in a golden age of television where television, like, good television is as good as a good movie now, I I still think there's something that some actors just can't get. They they just can't carry a movie on their shoulders, even if they're good at carrying a TV show. Maybe he Um, just needs to age. Like, you know how Jude Law has become a better actor as he's sort of lost his hair and become a bit more wizened as he's got older? Because he's kind of less relying on that, oh, hello, I'm Jude Law, I'm really good looking and blah 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 whereas now like there's a bit more substance to him as a man so maybe charlie hunnam just needs a bit of time maybe he 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 came up too early maybe just give him a few more come away go back maybe do a few sort of art sort of acting craft based movies and and then give it another bash but yeah he was he was elevated perhaps to a level that he might not have instantly felt comfortable on uh, let's move on now to uh, a comedy in Game Night, uh, starring Jason Bateman, uh, Rachel McAdams, and some others. Um, I went into this one kind of like Pacific Rim, not really expecting a lot, but I had two people separately, uh, you and Ian, a friend of the show who will be a future guest on the program, uh, both comment that it was surprisingly quite good. Uh, what did you think of Game Night? I had a blast watching this movie. Uh, I had pretty low expectations of it as well. March is that weird month, isn't it, where all the things that are coming out are post-Oscar. So there are like a few movies that kind of didn't quite get there, and there are a few movies that are just tonally wrong for that sort of post-New Year's pre-Oscars period, where it's just like if you release a like a, a, a sort of raunchy or like thriller-esque comedy like this in that period it's just gonna get ripped to pieces because all of the critics are watching like these like really serious like re sort of performance intense movie and then like here's a film about like a game night going wrong and like mobs and all sorts being involved in it uh but yeah i i really liked it i had a good time with it jason bateman retains his watchability uh, I think anybody who's a, a big Arrested Development fan will always like have a special place in their heart for him. Yeah, he get he gets a pass forever now. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and there was there's like a, a brilliant turn in it from from one of my absolute favourites, uh, Chelsea Peretti, uh, which I oh. which I really enjoyed as well. But yeah, just at the core of it, it kind of doesn't necessarily seem 
like it's gonna go to the place that it ends up going to like and a, a, a lot of what i liked about it is there wasn't like a gradual escalation throughout the movie as it sort of loses control it just throws you straight into crazy shit happening and then doesn't really let up like this is the pacing of this movie is great like there's no lag in it if you get what i mean yeah no no i totally do uh and i like it, it was one of those movies where the casting of it by and large was fantastic um i really enjoy the kind of getting to see something a bit different from kyle chandler uh, in his role as Brooks, Jason Bateman's brother, I, I, I think we uh, we we got to see a really good turn from him. Uh, one of your boys is in this as well. One of your faves. Um, oh, the guy, what's his name? They played Kevin in it. Lamont Morris. Yes. Yes. Anybody that is a fan of New Girl will love Winston Bishop because he's just such a ridiculous person. Uh, like a giant caricature random like portrayal of a person and Lamar Morris kind of brings that sort of there's like a natural like he's like a natural like he he's always in his performances like he's convinced that he is just a little bit better <laughs> than he actually is like so there's the cockiness but like he often ends up in situations which are just utterly ridiculous and kind of w- wouldn't happen to the sort of person that he thinks he's betraying and i like that um but yeah he he got like a couple of the best lines of the movie definitely specifically one referring to the, the fact that glass tables had a massive issue breaking in the film <laughs> he also um there there was also billy magnuson who was great as just like in these kind of comedies there's always the dumb guy but i i don't know there was something about the way he played dumb in this that was fantastic um i also loved he was kind of paired off for most of the movie with ireland's own sharon horgan uh of catastrophe fame uh who i thought was really good in this and i also enjoyed the the running joke of billy magnuson constantly saying that she was british and her getting like the right amount of slightly annoyed but then also you know? just giving up because you've probably been having yeah. that from yeah. americans for yeah. years it's it's genuinely the most realistic portrayal of how irish people actually react to being called british <laughs> where like at like the first couple of times you, there's almost like a little twitch and then eventually it's just like oh fuck it do, it just doesn't matter like they're just not going to get it are they yeah um it's way worse than a british person calling you british or like it's, yeah, it's, it is. Uh, that would yeah. be worse rather like like it, if we were referring to you yeah. as british then there'd be an argument but americans Indeed. it's just like uh, <laughs> they probably don't know any better so fuck it the one person though and we talked about this a little that might be out of place here is Rachel McAdams um I don't know I don't think she was I don't think she was bad in it but like I thought she was pretty funny I think the scene where she's there's a scene where she ends up holding up a bar basically and I thought she was great in that scene yeah yeah that was the I think that was the one time where I like I genuinely was laughing out loud at stuff she was doing but the, there's like a few moments in this where I keep getting reminded of like, oh, she's not, she's not really that great in a lot of films. Um, we talked about this off the air as well. There's one line in particular that was so bad, and it it's it's a really dreadful delivery of a line, and somehow makes it into the trailers of this film. So I don't 
it's not really a spoiler because it is even in the first trailer for this film where she's on she's standing outside a jet and a guy holds a gun up to her and there's a bit of back and forth a joke and then he gets sucked into the turbine of the jet and the delivery she gives of the line like she go she celebrates she's like yes and then goes oh no he died but the way she delivers it is like someone doing a play in high school because they were forced to yeah you know i i kind of feel like that's just the i am reading a line i am reading a line that is on a cue card on on the side of the stage rather than i am actually this person in this role it would take you out of the movie a bit because i agree with you on the way it's done but it it's kind of tongue-in-cheek because it is there so you can laugh at like the nature of the way that she says it yeah, I, I, although I will say, I think the star turn in this film, the one we haven't gotten around to, is Jesse Plemons. That poor Gary. bastard always plays a creep. Like, I don't know, it's kind of like half in this is a little bit of a fake out. Is he a creep or not? We're not really sure. But like, he has had some just, cre- like the, the Black Mirror role that he played was just the, the worst kind of person. And then obviously his his turn in Breaking Bad is just like a soulless as, um, as meth Damon soulless sociopathic disgusting person. Uh, yeah, it's I feel bad for him, but he was great. He really was great, he, and he he ended up being like, a lot more central to what was going on in the film that you might originally yeah. imagine. Like I laughed a lot. I saw this, so I saw I've seen this twice now because I saw it by myself just on a whim, and then my girlfriend decided she wanted to go see a comedy and it was kind of the only thing that was out at the time so i said well i enjoyed this so let's go see it and the second time round, i'm still laughing every time he's on but i noticed that like everything he does just with how boring and serious and everything about his character Emma was nearly in tears laughing at everything he did. The most subtly brilliant thing I thought he did was he answered the door and he had like a stunted (laughs) conversation with the group. And then like, they were like, oh, let's have a game night. And he's like, okay. But he doesn't invite them in. He just slowly backs away from the door and exits. And then you can't see him anymore. And the whole group of them are just standing there like, so do we follow him or... But it's just the, the look on his face as he's doing it. Just deadpan, stone-faced expression. It's it's class. Uh, let's move on next to Red Sparrow. The uh, the Jennifer Lawrence vehicle that kind of in the, the build-up to this movie coming out, a lot of people were saying, this is the Black Widow movie that hasn't been made. Um, because it's kind of... If it is, I'm glad it, it wasn't made. <laughs> Yeah, if you kind of like, if you look at some of the elements of that character, you, you could see the the threads of that of the 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 Black Widow character in it. But anyway, this isn't what that movie was. It was something entirely different. And I, I think we both left this film like thinking about it for a while and not in a really good way. I don't think I like this film at all, Jack. I think it was carried by Jennifer Lawrence entirely and not in a way that kind of makes me look back at it and think of it fondly, but sort of more in a way where it was like, if she wasn't 
the central character in this it could have been terrible like it could have been an absolute stinker of a film and it's it's weird because i'd seen uh, atomic blonde the the mm. like last year and it's kind of a similar thing of like you know female spy tries to go undercover in another country and a few events unfold around her and she's got to like think on her feet in the situation that she's in to survive and it was just it was executed in in such a better fashion and i think like mainly that's because like charlize theron had a decent actor to to go opposite with james mcavoy being in that one jennifer lawrence just aside from the moment where um jeremy irons turns up and i think half of me was just like i didn't know jeremy irons was in this movie so i'm really excited that i'm seeing jeremy irons right now because i love me some jeremy irons don't ask why he's just great possibly die hard with a vengeance uh there wasn't really anyone for her to bounce off i felt everybody in this was kind of just a bit stayed and i didn't really buy into them and i mean the, the whole tone of the film was obviously very sort of dark and and almost alienating but like the first 20 minutes is really tough to get through because her her deal is that she's like this this ballerina and and she gets this horrible injury and then like a creepy uncle sends her out to try and entice somebody for some reason super creepy uncle super creepy like super creepy harassy uncle sends her out to to do like a, a favor uh, and then she ends up like some guy attempting to to rape her, like or I don't know. It, he actually does, I think. And it's yeah, just, he he does. It's just horrible. Like, and you, you're thinking to yourself, like the first twenty five minutes of this are so bleak and so awful yeah. that it's very difficult. And I don't think it really recovers from that because no, because then it like then there are points at which it tries to play her off as like learning the art of seduction and being this kind of seductive spy but you're just like what are you going for here you know there, there's like I, I think they're trying to have their cake and eat it and have the super sexy spy thriller but also try and make a statement about re-empowering yourself in the wake of traumatic sexual assault um, it's not I don't t- think they handle that, either side no, of trying to do that. It's not the film that you really that that you're going to do that in. Like the whole point is, yeah. the whole point of the the Black Widow program as well is kind of, yeah, you've got the seduction of it, but then like the whole you know not being able to have kids and be being this cold, emotionless person. And it's just like we see Jennifer Lawrence just she just gets like battered emotionally and all these horrible things happening to her and like you're on her side the whole time but and you obviously want her to win and get out of it but you just want her to to get away and it's just the whole her becoming more and more a part of what's going on and not really having a a plan of escape or trying to get away from the situation that she's in just heading deeper and deeper into this lifestyle just makes me feel really sad i don't know about you yeah yeah, no, it definitely does. And like you said, there's no one really for her to act opposite for a lot of this that brings 
the the caliber of performer we know Jennifer Lawrence to be out of her the guy the person she's opposite most of this movie is Joel Edgerton who I've not necessarily been sold on uh, as a leading man but he he does an able job in this like I can't say he's bad but he's just not the person you want Jennifer Lawrence opposite she's not with Jeremy Irons long enough to have any compelling scenes same goes for Charlotte Rampling who's also in this movie and Mary Louise Parker who she has the briefest of interactions with at one point in this movie um yeah it's just this was a vehicle for her that in all the ways it should have been a vehicle was designed very badly and like i said to you the way the things they try to do in this movie like with having their cake and eating it it came off way more like at points like a porn movie or a snuff movie rather than a movie depending on what scene you were in yeah a bit of both yeah yeah so yeah sometimes a mixture of both in the same scene it, um, yeah. it kind of looks like the majority of the budget for this movie was just spent just getting jennifer lawrence to agree to do it yeah like um, even the you say like a porn movie it the budget was 69 million dollars <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, like, and it's great that, like, I read interviews because uh, I was so fascinated by how bad this film was for me afterwards that I just started reading interviews about it and, like, did it sound like the cast were confident about this being a smash hit? Uh, and I'm, I'm glad that uh, the way that uh, Jennifer Lawrence's character arc goes in this, she spoke a lot in the press about how this was kind of on a certain level for her like re-empowering herself after the her like her photos leaked a couple of years ago Uh, and that's probably the only ultimate good of this movie (laughs) that she felt you know it gave her a bit of that empowerment back uh, that was taken away from her uh when that all happened but apart from apart from that that's literally the only silver lining i can find in this like i re- i just i left this movie with a bad taste in my mouth and not the kind of bad taste where you're just like oh i meant to sit with this and ruminate on it and think about it uh i left with kind of a just oh, kind of sucked yeah at the time I, I didn't but the more i thought about it and the more i thought about the visceral things that happened and the fact that the film didn't really earn the right to portray them that was when I, I gradually started to sort of change the way I felt about it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Jack, <laughs> taking a hard left here. Uh, now, I haven't seen this movie, so please do stay brief and spoiler free. Uh, but talk to me about Isle of Dogs. So, Isle of Dogs is a movie directed by your best mate, as we've established, <laughs> which I'm sure you're going to get into very briefly, Wes Anderson. Uh, I think, yeah, I, I think I might save it until I've seen it, but uh, yeah, I, I'm not. I've gone on record before as not being a huge Wes Anderson fan. Love Rushmore, but other than that, I'm not a massive fan of his, but continue. Yeah. Uh, at some stage I should probably bring like Grand Budapest Hotel or something to the to the book club feature and we can just sort of debate it <laughs> and see Fair what enough. happens maybe okay so the premise of the movie is uh, dynasty of Japanese family who are mayors of a city which is called Megasaki instead of Nagasaki uh, hate dogs like cats cats are like their idol their symbol so they 
do everything they can to sort of diminish the role of dogs in society. At one point, there's an outbreak of a flu-like symptom for dogs and the mayor decides that the best thing to do is to banish them all to an island. And the first dog that gets banished is the dog owned by the mayor's little nephew who who is kind of taken under his wing after he lost his parents. Uh, and yeah, the, the mission for that little kid is to get his dog back and that's pretty much it that's kind of the story of the movie dave uh really that the film is about the the beautiful art style like really just amazing looking film this is a film that like you go and see in a cinema and and you don't regret it because it's all stop motion and it kind of has like a like a rough and ready sort of grungy feel to it like I've seen, I think it might have even been Mark Kamei described it as scratchy and itchy and because the whole film's kind of like about these sick dogs and like the, the animation style matches the affliction of, of the dogs all the way through and there's just some absolutely fantastic voice talent on offer. Like the main gang of dogs is Brian Cranston, Ed Norton, Bob Balaban, bill murray and jeff goldblum like it doesn't get much better than that really does it that that's awesome and and brian cranston in particular is is essentially the lead of the movie and he's like the gruffest of gruff dogs and he just nails that really really well like he he's as in character as as any of these guys in this like he gets inside the head of his dog and you kind of separate you don't have any separation rather between the voice of brian cranston and thinking that's water white uh, and and the dog that he's playing in the film he's brilliant i can't really say much more than that without giving it away too much to you the only thing that i didn't like and, and we can maybe discuss this at a later date is that while everything was was really well done and executed and and very impressive visually I didn't think the story was that strong. Not an awful lot happens in this movie, Dave. That's all I'm going to leave you with. Okay. Well, uh, take me to uh, another light and whimsical film, Jack, in The Square. Oh, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> you, 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 you buried the lead a little. You talked about it a little on your, your appearance on Link to the Cast with Mark last week. But... Uh, Give me, give me a couple more minutes on uh, the square, which is still, if if I'm not mistaken, haunting you. It's just one of the most odd collection of story choices I've ever seen made in a film. So the premise is you've got this art director, um, like like the main curator of a gallery in Sweden, uh, and he is there bringing about a new exhibition called the square which is by like a conceptual artist and and the idea of the square is it's essentially just a square on the ground but like that's kind of like the skewering of the modern art world with like light tubes around it and and the point is that while you're in the square you have the sort of respect uh of your fellow man and there's a sort of like benevolence of of the way that you're meant to act towards people when you're in the square like the whole thing is kind of you know to to generate a a feeling of like camaraderie and, and love between fellow humans right which is that sounds great and you think so okay this is going to be like a skewering of the art world and the 
ridiculous things that they do and people justify it as art which by the way completely on board for if somebody has something that they want to display in a gallery and it's weird and fucked up and twisted and people look at it and think this is a broken piece of shit how is this art then to me it's art because it's it's provoked a reaction from them and that might actually be exactly what the artist has intended so <laughs> I want to make my position on modern art clear. I'm not the sort of person that's just like, nah, that's fucking rubbish, mate. It, it wasn't done by somebody with a, with a Spanish or Italian name, so it's not art. That's definitely not the case. Um, so you kind of have that f- opinion is like, maybe this is going to be a comedy, but it just isn't. It, the, the trailer, I, I actually saw a trailer for it over the weekend because I went to a... Uh, a seasonal screening of Life of Brian and the the cinema I was in aired kind of like oh what's coming up in the cinema this week and they showed a trailer for The Square and it, it the trailer comes off like it is a comedy yes and that's what I thought because I first saw the trailer when I went to see um, Call Me By Your Name in like a picture house in Hackney because mm. it was the only place kind of left showing it and that was one that kind of gotten away from me in the whole Oscar season and boy, I was like, right, yeah, a good film that skewers the modern art world. I'm great. But what happens, Dave, is just the, it's so odd. The layout of the film, like, I'll, I'll give, like, the first little bit of the, away. It starts with a guy, um, the curator, but you don't know at this point. He could just pretty much be anyone. He's walking along the street, and a woman, like, runs up to him um is like shrieking and like help help he's coming to get me help all, this is all in like subtitled swedish and you kind of a little bit like oh all right yep yeah. so she grabs onto to the the curator for help like oh my god like please help me uh, and then this other bloke comes over and he's like oh yeah um you know it's all right you'll be safe with us and then this like big hulking dude comes over as well and he's like oh um you know like i'm gonna you know he's trying to get round and he's trying to get to the woman and and the two blokes are like no fuck off and and he just fucks off and you're like okay that's odd she's like thanks and then he gets to the the gallery and he realizes that he's lost his wallet and his phone during this so it's like oh okay it was clearly a scam the woman like while this was all happening was was just kind of out to steal from him and then the next thing that happens is somebody that he works with tracks his phone and he decides what they're going to do is write letters that threaten everybody in the building and post them through the the letterboxes of everyone that lives in that building saying leave the phone and the wallet here and I won't call the police otherwise like you know there's going to be grave consequences for you and like he's not at all a tough guy or anything but he does this Mm. and he gets it back and that's like the first 10 or 15 minutes of the film and you're like oh okay and then it just like it will just cut into another thing that's happening and then it cuts into another thing that's happening and while it's doing that it's still keeping that story simmering underneath and then it cuts to the next weird thing and then it keeps that simmering and then you see something else and it just keeps that simmering but then it just gradually just throws the consequences of the little storylines that have been happening it just throws them in your face and it just it takes some violent left turns and violent right turns into some of the oddest like freakish cinema i've ever seen like the centerpiece of the movie as i mentioned on uh when i was on link to the cast last week is 
a man who is essentially acting like a, a primate in primate sorry <laughs> just two pokemon there he's acting like a primate with like no social airs or graces like unevolved he's just got no shirt on and a pair of trousers and he is doing a live art installation in a room full of like people dressed up in like fancy dinner clothes and dresses and he just runs around and it's like 10 minutes of like some of the most disturbing and uncomfortable things that you'll see happen in a film and it's just mad I, I can't even do justice like if i were to sit here and describe all the other three or four actually i think maybe four or five of the things that happen in this film that all come together in weird shit in this guy's life it, it wouldn't be able to do it justice at all like it's it's so odd you have to see it dave like and i really want to hear your reaction afterwards and come on and maybe give a little bit of a talk because i was thinking about this movie for days afterwards like and i would remember bits and i'd like shudder just remembering things that happened in it it's so odd i it was it was the palm door winner at Cannes the Cannes Film Festival and if you go back and look at some of the other Palm Door winners like there's like a wide array of like films that end up winning Oscars and films that you've just never heard of that are bizarre and I feel like this is going to be one of those where in like 10 years time like no one will remember that there was a film called The Square apart from the people that have seen it and were just <laughs> moved by it and not necessarily in a good way but yeah it's it's viscerally brilliant and, and you have to see it it's so weird man uh, before we move on, I want to talk about one last film very briefly, but it's only just come out um, and I don't want to kind of give away too much about it. But the movie is called Michael Inside and it's an Irish film. Um, it was the screen unseen this month in Odeon Cinemas for Irish uh, cinemas. Uh, and that's how I got to see it. Um and it's it's kind of it's got a lot of uh, critical love at the moment it's about an 18 year old guy uh, who's living in a kind of I, I don't think it's a housing estate that actually exists i think it's just sounds very similar to a bunch of kind of like uh, dublin corporation housing estates uh, he lives there he lives with his grandfather and he's caught holding drugs for somebody else uh, he's kind of a victim of circumstance in as much as he kind of didn't know what he was getting himself in for um and kind of just was in a situation where he couldn't really say no to hiding this bag of drugs uh, he gets caught and he ends up getting sentenced to three months in prison and it's about kind of like the first act of the movie is is that happening and kind of the build-up to him there's this sense of foreboding from the very start when he gets caught that he's absolutely going to prison like the movie is called michael inside anyway so you you probably know it's going to end up with him in prison but the the movie one thing that that just runs a through line through the whole thing is there is just a constant and persistent sense of dread about it that it's just going to keep getting worse um and it, it's it's really interesting film uh that has a really powerful message about kind of um people of a certain socio-economic status being kind of damned if they get stuck in in a cycle uh in the world of crime how it's just so difficult to, to claw your way out even if you're not somebody that really 
was doing anything that bad in the first place. Um, It also deals a lot with this kind of, there's a certain juxtaposition that's very interesting between the the relative innocence of this young 18 year old guy like he left school um at like i think 16 he says in the film like after transition year uh fourth year in secondary school as we call it over here uh transition year the um he had been working for a while but he's still like he's done nothing you know he can barely grow any facial hair at all like he looks like a child even though he's 18 and like the synopsis for the film says he's an 18 year old man he looks like a boy um and there's an there's an interesting series of juxtapositions of him in this hardened prison uh, of horrible people and him trying his very hardest to not look like a deer in the headlights and to try and just like he gets his advice off his grandfather because there's a certain there's a certain element in the film to which like everybody around him kind of knows what's going on like you know his father is in the prison system in in the medical wing uh, I don't think they ever disclose why he's specifically in the medical wing, but he's in prison. The grandfather seems to know a bit about life in prison because he's given Michael a bit of advice before he goes in. Um, I, and like, yeah, he, he's trying his best to seem like he's not a target, you know, and convince... Um, convince people not to beat him up basically and he finds in the prison he finds somebody who kind of at first uh, is there on the kind of like he knows someone in his family and is going to look out for him but then that guy starts dragging michael into his world of shit and then you have a kind of a b story going underneath it of the grandfather dealing with the repercussions of him being caught with the drugs and i don't just mean in that like there's ridicule from the people in the town or anything like that i mean from the guy whose drugs they were uh coming to do the classic like pressuring the family that like you know i lost my drugs and i'm going to get that money back because i'm not going to get shot for a fucker like that kid um and it i really like it it's a real downer of a film but it's really compelling i think the performances are uniformly great and very very realistic performances rather than kind of theatrically exaggerated and i think it's a film that, like, from the, 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 the opening credits, you just have, like I said, the sense of dread and foreboding that things are just going to keep getting worse. And even when... The film does a remarkable job that even when things are going well for Michael, like, even... He has periods in this film where you think, okay, right, he's settled in now and he, he's going to be fine. In the back of your head, you're just like, this isn't going to last. The film does a really good job of keeping you constantly disrupted and unsettled much like he himself is in prison that like even though he's in a moment of calm you and he both suspect that that could all be shattered in an instant uh i really really like this film uh although it's one of those ones that's such a downer that i don't think i'd be in a rush back to see it but that isn't a reflection of of the film being bad it's more just like i don't want to be bummed out because it's that good you know what you've described sounds an awful lot like orange is the new black season one you think I see? I st- that's one of the shows I have never gotten around to, and I I do mean to, but there's just so much. <laughs> You've absolutely just described like the first season of that show is 
is brilliant because of all the reasons where it's like a person that wouldn't normally be in these circumstances is in these circumstances and you get the backstory of everybody who are kind of stuck in these like repeating decreasing circles around them where they can't get out of the the situation that they're in and they've all had these like really tragic things happen but at no stage do you ever feel settled like it's just gonna work out for her like there's always trouble lurking around the corner and it gets a bit ridiculous like two three seasons in especially the third season to me was like there was a massive jump the shark moment which actually occurred in water funnily enough uh, and that kind of turned me off it. But the first season of Orange is the New Black is is one of the best debut seasons of any show that I've seen. And it sounds an awful lot like a fleshed out version of what you just described for Mike Whiteside. Yeah, I definitely recommend it. And I'd, I'd be interested to see if you can find somewhere that's showing it, Jack, uh, to see what you think of it. But uh, definitely book this in as one half of a double bill with something light uh, because you, you, you'll need it. Uh, afterwards maybe blockers uh, that's yeah. out at the moment and that's a film that I've seen so yeah <laughs> yeah yeah uh, that might be uh, an idea let's move on now from now watched into our kind of uh, the homework assignments we like to give each other uh, for every episode in a feature that we like to call home video chewing we're home Jack, do you know what? Why don't you start us off this time uh, and talk uh, a little bit about Moneyball? Oh, okay. I thought you were going to start me on, on your film. Oh, no. We'll, we'll take your film first this week. I was going to say, uh, so otherwise it'd be a side move from one depressing subject into another one. Uh, as that is your gimmick so yeah. far, is to Let's just get a give bit of me... Yeah, depressing, weird, dark, twisted shit. Whereas I've given you an- less of a podcast, less of a podcast, and more of a social experiment to see how how long it takes before you get annoyed at me bumming you out. <laughs> yeah, and then storm off. <laughs> so Moneyball is a film, uh, basically based on real life events about a guy called Billy Bean uh, and a real life guy called Paul D. Podesta. Uh, and his use of analytics to produce a baseball team that would be capable of surviving and doing well in the major league baseball in America. Uh, And basically, because there's no salary cap, you can pretty much pay whatever you want. So the, the, the wage budget of his team is like a third of, say, someone like the New York Yankees. So it is their creative solution to being able to compete on the on the pitch without being able to compete financially. And yeah. at the heart of it, it is a sort of a human exploration of just how difficult it is when you have a bunch of people who are so set in their ways and are so fixated on their idea of how they think something works that when somebody else comes along with an with an innovation a different thing a a change there is just like an immediate rejection of the principles and it happens a lot in society uh and that's one of the coolest parts of this i think uh, this whole story is like somebody manages to revolutionize and reinvent a sport when they have no capabilities of being able to play at any kind of a decent enough level to do it themselves but they manage to do it through influence through analytics through 
like creative thinking and just you know the sheer force of will of being able to to create a situation that's better for yourself so dave what did you think of the film did you know much about the story had you heard much about the characters and what did you think of the performances in this movie yeah, so uh, I knew a bit about the story of Moneyball, uh, just being a, a guy who enjoys sport and and is friendly with a lot of people who enjoy sport. And, uh, you know, uh, I, I have come across this idea of Moneyball before. And there was a period of time, you may remember very well, Jack, during which uh, a lot of uh, football journalists were making Moneyball references every five seconds and it got very tiresome. But uh, so I was kind of like tangentially aware of, of the, the, the story of Moneyball. Um, and I can completely see why you put it in uh, our little feature here because it's a combination of two things we love and it's uh, basically an ESPN 30 for 30 documentary yes, written is. by Aaron Sorkin. <laughs> <laughs> that is pretty much exactly what it is. Uh, and I very much enjoyed this film. Um, I, I think for a start, it's maybe the least obviously identifiable Sorkin movie in as much as it's got the least amount of characters talking a thousand miles an hour as they're walking. Uh, <laughs> the the tried and true uh, trope of a Sorkin screenplay. Um, there was far less of that uh, than there is in a lot of his stuff. Now, I like that because I, I think his dialogue is incredibly well written, but... I think Moneyball also benefits from that because the the lines that are spoken get more time to breathe because there actually is breathing done in this movie. Um, the performances, pretty much uniformly, I very much enjoyed. Uh, I kind of, like, for me, Brad Pitt is a guy that it really depends on the role for me. Um, he's one of those guys that I very rarely disappear into his characters because he... He's not an actor. He's a movie star. You know what I mean? It's kind of like that Tom Ooh. Cruise level of like... That's a even bit if harsh I'm on Brad Pitt because no, I think he has no, been no, some I, really good acting performances. Yeah, yeah no, I, I think... No, I, it's not that he's a bad actor. It's more that like he's such a megastar that I don't think, oh, here's that character. I think, oh, here's Brad Pitt playing that character. You know, I don't have the suspension of disbelief that I can have with a lot. Like, you know, like Michael Shannon disappears into a role or a lot of actors just disappear into a role. Like there's a level at which I'm always like, well, there's movie star Brad Pitt or there's movie star Tom Cruise, even though I enjoy their films and have enjoyed a lot of their performances in the past. But he is very, very good in this. And I think more so than he has in a long time for me, disappears into a role um, as Billy Bean here. And I also like uh, Jonah Hill, who's another guy who, with this film and then later with, with Wolf of Wall Street, was a guy that had, I think everyone was surprised by how he actually has chops yeah um, he he's really good in this yeah it's a it's a brilliant character performance from jonah hill i mean there's mm. I, I don't know if you've seen freaks and geeks dave yeah I have. yeah there's i think there's an element of that early apatel awkwardness with the way that he sort of portrays yeah. his character yet at the same time like he's not playing it up for laughs he's just genuinely a little bit socially unaware of how to react in the company of these people that are earning shitloads of money yet are still kind of 
beholden to the ideals and the situations that he's created. Uh, two performances I do want to mention, and I, I just want to get your um, take on them. Uh, number one, I thought Philip Seymour Hoffman speak about disappearing into a role. His yeah. take on this sort of old, like like grizzled veteran coach kind of a little bit beaten down by the situation maybe knows he's sort of on his way out a little bit and he's in a is in a really tricky no-win situation uh and he's also very principle driven and has his specific vision of how he wants his baseball team to work etc i just he was brilliant here don't you you think yeah yeah and and he is that guy that that consummate gets really into a character sort of role and it's like there's just a, he's so good in this look just like he's so good in everything that there's just a pang of sadness that he's not here anymore oh, because yeah. he was just he's just fantastic like i remember like i i really have a soft spot for the hunger games movies i think they're really good like uh kind of summer sure like popcorn movie with that, that actually have a surprising amount of heart and drama to them but when he showed up in those, like, I full-on fist-pumped. <laughs> I was so excited. I was like, oh, yeah, my boy's here. Um, like, that's how much I enjoy Philip Seymour Hoffman. But, uh, yeah, it just is sad that he's not around anymore. He is excellent in this. And I don't know. I'm going to see if I'm uh, predicting where you're going to go next with this. Because he said there's two guys you want to uh, give a bit of credit to. And he's in, a like, a, a small role because he wasn't the, the mega star he is now. Uh, but I really love Chris Pratt in this movie. Bingo. Yeah, it's like a real low-key, understated performance from him when he's usually, like, just a goofball, like, full of charisma and, like, front and centre to whatever scene he's in. He's just got this little bit part... Uh, as a guy who's like he's kind of washed out of pro baseball and he's getting a second chance but in a position that he's he's not got any experience in and everybody but jonah hill and brad pitt think he has no business being there and yeah it's just a really understated performance it is and what i liked about it is the first time you see him in the movie he's in his house he has his wife there he has his kid there and he's just kind of this broken man of like it must feel that way for so many athletes and and speaking of 30 for 30s there's there's a documentary called broke dave which is about how athletes like go from this like extreme high of earning all this money and getting you know all of this plaudits and attention and then like within a few years after their professional athletes they go broke and you really see this sort of post like career depression like he he looks like a man who's his whole life has been geared around the identity of i am a baseball player and i am looking to achieve these certain things in the game and when you first see him he has that just feel of of a guy who's lost all of that and he just he plays that so well and he plays it just so straight and 
the moment where Brad Pitt kind of goes in there and he's like, look, I, I want you to do this. And, you know, this is a, a genuine offer to go from that to like gradually all the way through the movie. Like he's, you know, sort of taking his licks and his lumps from pretty much everybody, but like goes on to be like this really pivotal guy in the whole plan for basically succeeding through statistical uh, dominance as opposed to succeeding through like genuine, like, transformative talent on your team i love that do you know what? there's another really small role that i want to mention in here as well and it's not a guy that normally acts but spike jones plays uh yeah. he plays brad pitt's ex-wife's new husband he's like this rich guy who owns like a really nice house uh I, i'm guessing like down in los angeles hollywood kind of area and there's a few scenes where those two have to awkwardly interact with each other, like ex-husband and new husband. And the chemistry that they have, like, will kind of set you sort of, like, teeth jagged, like, uh, and they just get that so pitch perfect. It's unbelievable, the social awkwardness between two guys. Uh, and neither of them are particularly dicks. Like, you don't have any immediate dislike for either of them. But just being put in that situation where it, you're connected by, like, the fact that you've got a kid with your ex-wife and that he's now dating her i i thought those like few little bits and pieces were great as well they're really good i i think overall this is just like a really competent good interesting story told by like uniformly great performances um at the end of the day i i really did i, I don't normally get like the uh, I don't. I didn't get the the feeling I normally get from Sorkin movies because Sorkin dialogue is like so kind of sardonic and and quippy and fast. So I wasn't like doing the you know chuckling every few seconds at something witty that was said that I normally do with Sorkin films. But this was yeah d- d- a different kind of thing, but really really enjoyable nonetheless. I'm glad you enjoyed it, me. I thought you would like it, and yeah, as a guy that as a, as a professional analyst and also loves sports, this film couldn't be. A, I am the target audience. I am the Venn diagram overlap for this. So yeah, it's one of my favourites. Uh, now taking us on a slightly different path here, Jack. Uh, I got you to watch Trouble the Water, which is I'm a big, big documentary buff, and I uh, this is one of my favorite documentaries I've ever seen. Um, it's a 2008 film that's about uh, a couple and the family and neighborhood around them uh, trying to survive uh, Hurricane Katrina and its aftermath in New Orleans. Uh, uh, and kind of the, the lives they had up until then and, and them trying to rebuild uh, themselves a- as well as their lives and their livelihoods after their homes and their town is destroyed and their government abandons them. Uh, what did you think of the rather bleak, but uh, maybe not 100% bleak Trouble the Water? It felt like, and I don't know if this is an insensitive thing to say, it kind of felt like somebody made Cloverfield, but for real. Do you know what I mean? As in just this, like, handheld footage of a disaster in progress. Exactly. And... Yeah. And the the sort of the, the start of the film where, like, she's 
excited that she's like this new video camera but like they're going around and sort of talking to everybody like pre-storm and it's almost like there's this immense sense of dread but like the human element of it at the start of like these people Mm. uh and then when the storm starts happening and you just see the actual toll that it takes on the neighborhood and you know like she's the bit where she's like goes outside for like a brief second because of like the water's coming up to like the level of her back door and she's just soaked and then you know in the end having to sort of get higher and higher ground in the house and like it just is it's terrifying man like you yeah how many disaster movies are there where you're seeing it through the eyes of, of one person well this is it and i think the one of the real compelling edges this has is that it's all made from footage that the subjects of the documentary had taken themselves that it wasn't until midway through the disaster where the the documentary team the team that directed and edited this uh or the producers of fahrenheit 911 uh and the the the, the subjects of this documentary were already recording this before it happened um uh, and so you get to see what the the ninth ward and stuff looked like before the levees broke and you get to see kind of like they're layering it in with archive footage of the mayor and the fema director and everybody reassuring them that they're going to be there for them and they're going to help and there's a scene in particular like when you know the levees failed um you talked about this sense of dread because you we all know what happened when hurricane katrina hit new orleans so in spite of the fact that she's all happy and like almost like oh look something interesting is about to happen here uh you're just like oh god get out get out get out of there because i know what's going to happen but there's a scene um where she's kind of i think it might be during that scene where she's walking down and just talking to a bunch of different people on the street where uh she says something someone says something about how we'll be fine because the levees are there and it just tore the heart out of me yeah uh and they do a real good job of kind of like interspersing that with like they'll they'll cut back and forward between um it's kim yeah kim and scott are the 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 subjects of the documentary scott roberts yeah it uh it, it cuts back and forward between them before and as the storm is hitting and then it, with scenes afterwards of them getting out of new orleans and trying to put their lives back together and it's just masterfully done and and one of the things that really just killed me in this um is there's a couple of scenes where it's just a montage of footage that kim or scott had captured and genuine 911 calls uh, that had been coming in yeah, during uh, Katrina. That was going to be the next thing I was going to talk about because that I could that was hard to get through. Yeah, I'll hand off to you on this because there is one in particular that just the first time I saw it it absolutely just sat with me for a long time and it's the one about the there, there's a woman who is stuck in her attic and the water is up too high and it's still rising. And she can't cut through the attic and she's stuck and she's just begging for help. And the woman on the phone is just like, the help isn't coming. And she says, so I'm just going to die then. And there's just a silence on the line that is just, it's a, it, like, it, it's the true definition of a deafening silence. Yeah. It, 
yeah it's kind of similar to uh, there's a few emergency calls that happened from um the towers when 9-11 was happening it's just a similar level of absolutely harrowing and as well like the idea of that and the fact that before the storm hits you're seeing all the people in the neighborhood like as if they were like characters in a film and then there's just the sort of dread of like where where when when it all you know it goes wrong and they kind of have to realize they have to get out of there and head for for higher ground it's like where are all these people you know like what happened to them all like and and another thing as well tonally at the start is before the storm comes they're kind of almost excited about it which are, yeah it's it's almost like their lives are like their lives in a way are so downtrodden and nothing interesting ever happens that like oh it's almost like oh it's something to talk about the storm is coming yeah like and they're like commenting like oh here comes the wind like and they're just and that that as well like, i found really hard and i'm glad they kind of left that in because you know the natural curiosity of of the way they felt like pre and post storm and then back end of the movie uh the last thing i'm going to mention all of the cut in of like george bush and all of the assurances and the promises that are being made like post storm and just the absolute yeah. lack of any structured support that took place and then walking through the neighborhoods and all of the signs on the doors of like the eviction of like you know this is going to be fixed this is gonna and you've got like the national guard there as well who are like surprisingly hostile it's just yeah so they're like the, one of the greatest the, the, c- crimes committed by the American government on their people in in the fucking history of the country. I think what happened there. There, there's two scenes that really exemplify that as well. So there's the there's one that's done in editing, and it's an incredible smash cut that says all you need to say about the the response to Katrina. And it's like this, it might be after one of the montages of 9-11 calls, but it's something serious is happening that kind of illustrates how bad the storm is. And then immediate smash cut to a close up of George Bush's smiling face. Yeah. That was just like, oh, it got my dander up in a big way. Every time I've seen that movie, it's like. Yeah, I mean, this. (laughs) if you ever think that like Donald Trump has eclipsed how much you hate George Bush or like disliked what he did with America just watch this and you'll remember to hate all over again Mm, indeed and then there's another scene which is um, they decide at a certain point that the help isn't coming so they need to start moving and them and a bunch of other people who are wading through like waist high water uh, they they walk about 10 blocks carrying like sick and elderly people in a boat they found yeah it's and not every, even like a proper they, boat it's just like fucked up and like they're kind of trying to push it and it just isn't like right the whole time yeah. you just, the whole time i was watching that because i had no you know what katrina was but you have no idea that these people are going to be okay like you have no idea yeah. that this boat this fucked up piece of shit boat that they found is gonna hold up like it or, or at some stage you're yeah. just gonna get swept off like that was to me that was another moment of creeping dread like uh, most of this film i just watched the whole time just assuming something shit was gonna happen repeatedly yeah it's so tough so, to watch there's, there's a scene so they they walk 10 blocks with these people 
uh, because they had heard that they should go to the Navy base. And uh, there's a bit that explains that there are 200 Navy barracks, uh, 200 Navy kind of, uh, I don't know what the word they use was, dorms, maybe dorms, um, that are being used. But they were in the middle of decommissioning the base. So there was an additional room for 500 families on that base that were completely empty. So they had been told by, I think, one of the National Guard or something like that, head to the Navy base, they'll look after you. And as Scott tells the story, they get there and they ask to come in. They're not being aggressive about it. They just want shelter just for the night before they move on to maybe the Superdome or somewhere else, the Red Cross Center, wherever. And the Navy draw weapons on them. Yeah. And there's a horrifying, like, there's him telling this story and then it will periodically cut to representatives of the armed forces basically denying or just not speaking about that happening. Um, and that kind of leads into a segment of the film where um, Scott and and Brian, who's uh, the guy that they had met while all this was going down and became a really close friend of him and Kim, um, the two of them just walking around and kind of talking to the military dudes and like all of them just being so blissfully unaware of how late to the party they are and still in the face of it. And this touches on to the, the kind of the, the final thing I want to talk about before uh, that still, you know, these people, these the subjects of this documentary, Scott and Kim and, and Brian as well, are, are all people who are still so just pure that they are still thankful that they're here at all. Yeah. You know what I mean? They're not as like they they're angry that they were abandoned by their government. But they're like there's part of me that's just like they don't seem as angry as I am right now. <laughs> like I'm furious and they're just like they're so positive about it. I there's, there's a scene where when they get somewhere else in Louisiana, um they have their water turned back on because obviously like the water mains are in such a state. Uh, and they've moved to this kind of sort of abandoned house that there's no water. The water gets turned back on and they're so thankful and they're so happy. And then literally five minutes later, the same guy comes back and says the city has told him to turn the water off again. And they still thank him because they know he's just a dude doing his job instead of like freaking the fuck out like most people would in that situation. Yeah, I, I think what this movie does well is put you through all the stages of grief. Mm, like very much but so. you go through it in 90 minutes and they're going through it in like over the course of a couple of months uh so the way that they react to it and that's the uplifting part of it like towards the end is once they've reached the point of acceptance with the situation and they are grateful and thankful that everything is still you know there i mean at the end of the day what have we all got we are alive <laughs> that's the one thing yeah, that they, they literally they, they literally say that yeah, at one point that, that's the point like that's the point that the documentary is trying to illustrate like well it, it'll point out all of these ills but then there's that kind of sense of like if you survive something like that it just gives you a completely different outlook on everything so that it has all of the because there's um as a spike lee did a like a massive documentary about all of the like ins and outs of it um from like a logistical point of view and like everything that went down whereas 
this is the human story of how the people at like the ground zero of the event reacted in the moment and what the effect was on their lives long term and so there's that part of it that's strangely uplifting but as you say because yeah, it I, takes I th- them I think that amount of time to get through it and you're going through it in 90 minutes the fucking rage and just dread that comes over you yeah. is intense yeah and i think like kim and scott are such like great people during this film. yeah like they they genuinely like ah oh, they're just the best kind of people like there's that scene where like she's filming him wading through what like swimming against the current to get across to houses to make sure people in the neighborhood are okay and to try and get them help and if they need to get over to where they're holed up in their attic to get them over and he was talking about how like he got the boat full of old and sick people down to there was a high school they stayed in for a couple of days and like he got the boat down there himself just by holding his arm like hands onto the back of the boat and kicking his legs and then he points out and i can't swim (laughs) you know he was just a guy who's like these people need help i don't fucking care that i can't swim i'm gonna help them um him and kim as well who was just like such a positive force and such helpful and nice and genuine people and and not only is that the uplifting part of the movie but as you say because they're so nice and these are all just people you know what i mean living their lives never done anything to anybody and they're just being abandoned and fucked over by their country like there's a really harrowing scene where a woman is like there's a woman talking about how she can't believe that the government abandoned them and to think her son wants to join the army. And she's like, there's no fucking way he's joining the army now. <laughs> you know, he's going to college. He's not going to fight for a country that won't fight for him. Um, yeah, it's just, it, it's this incredible emotional roller coaster between just uplifting story of the kind of resilience of the human spirit and Jesus, fuck the state, you know? Yeah. It just, yeah. Pretty much. I, the, but you, the, you liked it anyway. I liked it. I I mean, I liked how powerful it was. I don't know if I'll watch it again because it was a very, <laughs> yeah, it's, it was difficult to get through. Um, and yeah, yeah. It, it does leave you with a sense of anger. The one thing that I will mention is that a lot of people did end up in the Superdome. Um, and one of the things I actually went and, and rewatched after this was... Obviously, the Superdome is is where the New Orleans Saints play, and they're like a big central focal point of that town. You know, like it's a it's a party town primarily, but that that team has been historically awful, Dave. Uh, and yeah. the first game back in the Superdome, the very first like th- offensive possession for for the team that they were playing didn't go great, and they went to punt. And this guy called Steve Gleason, he's like a special teams guy, comes out and he blocks the punt. And it is one of the biggest, most positive explosions of noise and excitement I've ever heard in my entire life. This guy blocking this punt, like this big, massive, like epic sort of journey that all these people have been on and like everything that the Superdome meant to help the people that were there and and this and, and what the saints did for the town and this they get they, they finally get football back in the town and then you have this this sort of seminal like 
big play that happens and it just the overwhelming positivity of, of that moment and yeah I, sorry to bring it back to sports but afterwards i was like i, I kind of need to cheer myself up so i'm gonna watch that yeah. uh, and that was like a year on from uh, from katrina so yeah that that i would recommend to anybody go out there and just like steve gleason that guy has um god take it down again but that guy has als now um which is which is really sad but he's done like he was i think if not the the initiator but one of the guys that was behind the spread of the als ice bucket challenge a few years ago so he's Mm. been a massive sort of campaigner for, for um like sufferers of als and yeah that guy has had like a a ridiculously positive impact on that town and like he literally went out after that night when the when the saints won their first game back in the superdome and he just went straight to bourbon street and was drinking with the fans until like the wee hours of the morning so yeah there's a there's a there's some positivity that did manage to occur in new orleans after all that and they actually went on to win the super bowl like two years after being just the fucking worst (laughs) for such a long time they were like people used to call them the ain'ts rather than the saints so yeah there's there's a there's a good little like mini doc on uh, youtube you can watch about steve gleason so yeah that all that all kind of balance out all of the negativity Uh, to close out our home video segment here jack we got to talk about what what are we going to do our deep dives on next week uh i'll go to you first because no you 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 first because i think you revealed this um second last time so i want to go second this time okay 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 so uh yeah i i've been guilty of doing a couple of shall we say somber movies uh so far on the podcast and i did promise you after the last one because i knew trouble the water is a tough one to get through that i would make a real change and i'm gonna do a deep dive on one of my favorite movies of all time and i genuinely think one of the funniest movies i've ever seen a movie that the first time i saw it I struggled to breathe. I was laughing so hard at it. Um, And one that, like, it's kind of... I really hope you haven't seen because I I, I love getting to introduce people to this movie for the first time. But if you have seen it, you're going to really enjoy having an excuse to see it again. We're going to go to 2009's epic Black Dynamite. (laughs) Oh, man, I haven't seen this. Oh my god. Oh my god. It's like, oh. Jack, the phrase greatest movie of all time gets thrown around <laughs> a lot. <laughs> but I think I could say without fear of contradiction that you are going to love the shit out of this movie. Okay. Oh, I'm so happy you haven't seen it. I'm genuinely giddy now. <laughs> I'm I'm looking forward to it. I remember like around the time a lot of people had a lot of good things to say about it. I, I just never got around to watching it. It's just for those for the people who don't know anything about Black Dynamite, I will leave it at this. Imagine Gareth Marenghi's Dark Place was a black exploitation film. Wow, that's some praise right there from you. <laughs> and you'll you'll see what I mean when when you see it. It's just oh, I'm not going to say anymore because I don't want to spoil anything. I'll just start rattling off quotes if I keep talking about it. So, what was your film? Okay, Dave. So I've gone uh, another direction. Not necessarily a film that doesn't... There might be a few funny moments in this film, but like the heart of the film is, is certainly not comedy. And I am going to go back to the beginning of the 1990s, Dave. I'm going to go to the year 1990. 
right. And I'm going to go with what is probably my favourite film by one of the better directors. Like, if you were making a sort of all-time top ten directors, to me it'd be very difficult not to include this guy. Um, and I am going to go with the Martin Scorsese-helmed film, Goodfellas. Have you ever seen this before? Oh, okay. Yes, I have, and I have uh, some sort of special edition Blu-ray of it that I haven't actually had a chance to watch yet. There you go. So I, I'm gonna I'm gonna watch it in crisp Blu-ray quality. And I just want to revisit this because I haven't seen it for a while now, and it's something that I really love. And I've never really had an extended conversation with anyone about how much I love so much of the things that happen in this movie. So uh, yeah, Goodfellas it is. Uh, this is one that I I don't. It does get some kind of plaudits, but when people sort of mention that Italian mobster film, like it, it tends to get overlooked for for the likes of The Godfather, etc. But Goodfellas is is great, and uh, yeah, let's have a a good old chat about that in a couple of weeks' time. Okay, uh, let's head towards the end of this podcast with our final feature, the previews. I am a movie critic by trade, and until recently, I got paid to tell you people which movies merely stink and which ones you shouldn't screen near an open flame. Now, Jack, uh, you mentioned to me off-air that you have a bone to pick with our preview game. So uh, the floor is yours, my friend. Right. Closest without going over, I don't like. (laughs) Closest, I like. But why, why have you written closest without going over? I, it was only closest without going over if we were both tied for like we were both within say five percentage points. Ah, it'd be whichever one of us didn't go over to break the tie. Okay, then I have no yes. bones to pick. Excellent, excellent. Uh, so, Jack, would you do me the favor of having these movies? I think this is the way we'll do it: is that I will read out what our predictions were, and then you can read out what the actual result was. I see. Yep. Uh, so we're using the Rotten Tomatoes score uh, of what these films were. And just to tot up what our films were from last month, uh, the first one on the schedule was uh, Tomb Raider, uh, which came out on March 16th. Jack's guess was 63%. Dave's guess, 72%. Da- Jack, what was the Rotten Tomatoes score as, for Tomb Raider? As of day of recording, Dave, the final result for Tomb Raider was that it was a rotten 49%. So that would be you <laughs> getting the point there. Jack won, Dave nil. Pacific Rim Uprising, March 23rd. Jack's guess, 51%. Dave's guess, 48%. Dave, the final scores are in. And at one stage, it looked like I was nabbing this because it was hovering around that. But unfortunately, a few reviews have blown it up and it is now 45% rotten. Ba-boom. Dave takes the point. Uh, Ready Player One, Jack's guess, 78%. Dave's guess, 67%. Oh, this is close. The current status is 74%. So, uh, oh, so that is a Jack win there. Just edged that um, one. And now in a <laughs> in one that was completely, completely missed by one member of this panel. Hey, you listen here, son. You saw the trailer points, for that. 
points points for figuring out who uh a wrinkle in time march 23rd oh. jack's guess 48 percent. dave's guess 83 percent. oh what i was smoking oh wow i completely <laughs> forgotten that you'd guessed that for that that is crazy uh yeah i really oh i overestimated how bulletproof disney was Dave, i, I saw the like st- like the stuff around this and i was like mm, that doesn't look great uh but sure uh but yeah dave is uh, 39 percent at the moment pal <laughs> uh so that'll be uh 3-1 to jack I, I thought you were going with the next film you're about to, to do which is uh a much bigger miss on my part i think uh peter rabbit which came out march 16th jack's guess 14 percent dave's <laughs> guess 50 <laughs> oh god it's at 61 percent dave oh 61 <laughs> people like this wow that is that's a that's a that's a wide open miss for you oh dude that is a huge miss like <laughs> almost like Oh fuck! I just yeah, I I I really thought it was going to be one of those things that got savaged, but no. The only film that's been really savaged recently is is Bruce Willis's remake of Death Wish, <laughs> which is currently sat on seventeen percent on Rotten Tomatoes. Oh dear. Uh, let's move to this month's guesses now. We've only got three kind of big-ish movies that were that we thought we, we'd throw into this one before we do our next recording. The first one, Jack, it's a biggie. April 26th, Avengers Infinity War. Now. I'm gonna, I, I'm gonna let you have this one. Well then. Um, so, we live in a post-Black Panther world, Dave. Mm-hmm. I feel like that has slightly shifted the expectation of uh, of the big budget blockbuster comic book movie because of the social importance of it. But also, Black Panther is included in this movie and probably plays quite a pivotal and central role in what looks like the first major action set piece of the film. So... I don't think it's going to be as highly rated as Black Panther, but I also don't think that it's going to go hugely off reservation. So my estimation for what is... I mean, has there ever been a more, like, all-star cast that are, like, all-featured? Like, you look at the poster of it, and it's just absurd, isn't it, the amount of people in this movie? Yeah. So my guess, Dave... It, it really is uh, gone yeah my guess is 91 percent okay my fear uh for this is we and we talked about this briefly is the idea that black uh, black panther uh, and, and like Guardians films has set the bar very high and two very good uh, Captain America sequels have set the bar enough that the likes of you recall what a kind of uh, disappointment in some respects uh, Age of Ultron was and my concern for this film has always been collapsing under the weight of expectation and just how many different stars are in here you know, uh, I think that's the thing that's yeah. worried a lot of people about it. So I'm going to make a slightly more conservative guess than you. 
and I'm going to go with 82%. Sure. Because uh, I, I think just from going like on a lot of reviews I read over the years in comic book movies, when a comic book movie is really good, but they don't necessarily want to go Dark Knight level of praise on it, four stars is like the de facto, this was a good comic book movie rating. Um, I, I think there are going to be some people being the low man on it because there is always the temptation to be the one critic who's like, I didn't like it. Uh, but I think that'll be more than balanced out by, by the praise for it. So I, I'm going with a with an a- 82 on this one, I think. Yeah, I agree. Um, so that, that is entirely possible. Uh, we'll lock that in. 91 and 82. But don't play yourself, Dave, because remember, Rotten Tomatoes just is an indication of whether it's a positive or negative review. So four stars would count. This is a zeros and ones outlook. This is not Indeed. a Metacritic amalgamation of scores. Mm-hmm. Indeed, indeed. This next one, um, who boy, Rampage, April 13th. There's a lot of things going uh, against it. One, it's technically a video game adaption. Those aren't very good. Number two, it looks terrible. That's going against it. <laughs> but the main thing it has going for it is that The Rock is in it. Yes, he is. And... The Rock turns chicken shit into chicken salad with alarming frequency. Um, that even when he's in bad movies that are definitely bad, he is great in them. Um, I have no doubt that this movie is going to make a lot of money just because The Rock is so bankable uh, as, a, as a star in a film. But I don't think this film is going to be very good. Uh, I think this is going to be... I think the best we can hope for is a real kind of... mid. I don't think lightning is going to strike twice. Remember we talked about it, Jumanji came out and we were all shocked at how it wasn't bad. Yeah. I don't see lightning striking twice here. I think this is going to end up very middle of the road and I'm going to give this a whopping 56%. Interesting. Now, Dave, are you aware that the poster to this movie is like... A giant gorilla that can't fit in frame and a picture of our buddy Dwayne with the phrase big meets bigger slapped on it. Yes. Yes. One hundred percent. Just kidding. <laughs> yeah. yeah, like I said, people are gonna go see this movie and we are among them. I care. But I'm not gonna lie, I'm watching like, the hell out of this movie. Like the the that is a different question from how are critics going to treat this movie? Very true. Ugh. This this is the one that I find hardest to compute because it, it could go one of two ways. Like, it's a low, low floor and a potentially pretty high ceiling. I don't see it being beyond, like, 70%. But, like, if it did hit that, yeah. I wouldn't be shocked. But if it kind of dropped down to, like, 20%, having seen some of the stuff from it again wouldn't be particularly thingy so with like a big sort of 50 percent room to swing i'm gonna go with 61 percent for rampage based entirely on the strength of mr Dwayne the roke johnson staying with you jack the final movie we're going to talk about uh is may 4th uh the amy schumer vehicle i feel pretty 
which is kind of the uh, the the body positivity comedy uh that that she's coming out in that is it though (laughs) if you've seen the the thing this is well this is the this is the argument that's that's going on it's like because people haven't seen the full movie the trailer out of context very much looks like you just doesn't look like it's saying the thing it thinks it's saying (laughs) you know that kind of thing like i think they very much went into this thinking it was like a you know the kind of like anti-body shaming positivity message they really wanted and i the trailers don't have it come off that way uh what do you think about i feel pretty how how does it look and where do you think it's gonna land uh it the trailer made me cringe pretty heavily yeah i like amy schumer a lot as a comedian i really liked train wreck i thought it was great like really enjoyable film and it gave a spotlight to bill header and anything that does that makes me happy uh so this like it kind of you know the shallow how that film with jack black in which you know it was very shallow 16 17 years later is very problematic to watch with the way that society has evolved Do you, do you remember the subplot in that, that Jason Alexander had a tail? Yes, and he was, yeah. Like, what even was that? Like, why was that even a thing in that movie? I, I, don't, I just, I don't know, but that movie was so bad. But anyway, where's your score at? Oh, <laughs> oh man. Uh, this, I've gen- I haven't got a clue, mate, because is it one of those things where it is this big, you know, social sort of acceptance movie or is it just what it looks like which is a bit of a gross out comedy that doesn't look like it has the moral center to make any kind of stance like that in a realistic way i don't know i might just have to stick right in the middle and just say that 50 percent is where i'm gonna set the bar for this one yeah because I I I sent there's I'm, an I'm article not. out there, guys, um, to read, and it's fifty six uh, movies on Rotten Tomatoes that are, that are classified as rotten, which is anything that is below sixty percent. That are films that, on reflection, are pretty good, and there's an awful lot of comedies on there. So comedies are kind of a little bit subjective at the best of times. But I think even with the subjective factor, like I think there are just going to be a few, like specifically, I would imagine female writers who just want to tear this a new asshole, <laughs> to, to put it in a very blunt term. Yeah, that's why I I'm gonna land at this. So you were what? What was that score again? Fifty percent. Fifty percent. Yeah, my plan with this was to go to uh, forty-two. Uh, because I think there's a combination of uh, the things you just outlined. And I think as well, there's kind of a, there are certain elements to which I think critics, even when Amy Schumer is great, that they, that I've seen people be very harsh on her and I don't understand why sometimes. So I think that may knock it down even further. Yeah, she is like a magnet um, for like, 
a, a level of, of hatred or whatever that I don't really yeah. understand. Yeah, like she gets kind of like not quite Lena Dunham levels of abuse off people. Uh, but then she doesn't put her foot in her own mouth with the alarming regularity that Lena yeah, Dunham Yeah, she's does. far less problematic of an individual than Lena Dunham for a variety of reasons, which you can Google. But gets, but, yeah, but gets kind of like the same kind of, you know, oh, I hate her sort of abuse. Yeah, um, unnecessary. So yeah, I'm sitting with 42 on that. Anyway, I think it's time to draw proceedings to a close here, Jack. Uh, it's It's been an enjoyable show again. Good, uh, another good chance to chat the movies with you. Um, so thank you for being on the show once again and uh, yeah that's it for the popcorn social Um, we shall see you again next month and until then I suppose we'll see you at the movies (laughs) 